0: Amen. Well, God is good. It's good to have all of you here on a Wednesday night. I feel like we were just together. Amen. Uh, how many of you love the Word? Well, I do too. We're going to, we have two Galatians left and then we're done. It's already begun on the radio. I couldn't believe it. I was driving here tonight and there it was. So I said to myself, I need to finish. Because it's already on the radio. So we're going to do that. Had a wonderful weekend. We had over 2,000 people in church. It was really good. So good reaching all those folks. And John Collier's back to England. Well, he's on the way tomorrow morning. And so Godspeed, God bless him, and um, enjoyed everything he had to say. Now I want to pray together, and then we're going to get into Galatians. Father, we just thank you right now for the Word of God that is good. And we pray that you will minister to us tonight. Feed us, Lord, for we need to understand the walk you've called us to. We need to understand how to walk with Jesus in success against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Lord, equip us, help us, and minister to us tonight, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, Fruit of the Spirit. Because that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And God bless you. You can be seated. Now, believe it or not, this is our 13th week in Galatians. We will have been 14 weeks in it. But, you know, I know people that spend a year in one book. We don't do that, but we do go over in an expository way. Uh, the verse-by-verse teaching in Galatians because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, if God breathed all of it out, then I want to hear all of it, and I want to learn all of it, take it all in. Now, tonight, a couple of big words here, the great evidential and elemental fruits of the Spirit, and I'm going to show you what I mean by that in just a moment. I got a little echo here, Terry. Now, last time we looked at the first three fruits of the Spirit, Same with me. They are love, joy, peace. How many of you are walking in those? Or at least those are growing in you. Are they growing in you? Well, they should be if you're a child of God. Because we're not going the other way. We're not getting worse. We ought to be getting better. Now, these are what we call the emotional fruits because these are emotion. Love is an emotion. You, You feel it emotionally, Joy and peace. And I love those, all of them, all three. Now, we find the next three fruits, which are what we're going to call evidential. Now, what we mean by evidential is they provide visible proof or evidence of the great work of God uh, in the heart of the believer. You know, I say all the time, when somebody is really saved, it's going to show. There's going to be evidence. Now, you're not perfect overnight. Matter of fact, you're never perfect but you do, or should get, mature. When Jesus said, be, there, be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, he wasn't saying that we could actually be perfect, flawless. We won't until we get into glory. But we're supposed to grow into maturity and not stay in our diapers, spiritually speaking. But most Christians, most Christians unfortunately, don't grow into maturity. And why don't they? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is they don't understand the Scriptures. They're they're never taught the Scriptures. They don't know how to walk into maturity, how to grow into it. Well, Galatians is sure one of those letters that tells us how. So uh, the evidential fruits are those fruits that evidence that we are children of God. Now let's read together all nine of the fruits of the Spirit and then focus on the second set of three. Are you ready? Read it good and loud with me so they can hear you on the radio. Are you ready? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You know what that's saying? No law or rule book can produce those things in you. It comes by walking in the Spirit. Now, the first of the evidential fruits mentioned is long-suffering. Well, what is long-suffering? It's when you suffer long. How many of you could say, I'm there, Pastor Jeff. I'm, I'm there for sure. It's when, uh, well, that's kind of what it means. I'm making a little joke there. But it comes from a compound Greek word. Remember what a compound word is? Two words in one. And the Greek word is makrothumia. Now, notice, makros means long, and thumos is temper. So the Greek word that long-suffering, or we translate into long-suffering, means to have a a long-temper. That is, you don't go off a handle at the drop of a hat. You're not short-tempered opposed to long-tempered. A short-tempered person blows up at the slightest provocation. Even the pets are afraid of this person. When this person walks in the house, the dog gets under the bed. And they blame it on everything. Well, I had a hard day at work or there was terrible traffic or things aren't just going my way. No, no. When the fruit of the Spirit is producing long-suffering in you, it doesn't matter how it's going out here. You're still going to be long-tempered. You can take it. You can handle it. A long tempered person is just the opposite. He doesn't fly off the handle. He has control over his own spirit. Solomon wrote in the Proverbs A person without self control is like a city with broken down walls. You know what that means? The person who doesn't have control over their own spirit, control over their passions, they don't have self control, they're angry, they're lustful, they're fearful, they. They don't have control over their words. That's like a city that has no defenses. And the enemy just comes and goes in that city because there's nothing to stop the enemy from getting in. Walls are for protection. The person who has developed long-suffering does not rush to retaliate or avenge a wrong suffered and long-suffering, guess what, is not the same as patience. You were thinking, well, that sounds like patience to me. It's not. Let me show you what patience is. Patience, Bible patience, is that quality that does not surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial, meaning the person walking in patience is not crushed or broken or stopped or defeated by adverse circumstances. They are able to walk continuously in the Spirit with a good attitude, carrying the load of that trial. They don't break by it. They're not broken by it. It is the opposite of despondency, and it's linked to hope. The patient person always has hope in front of them. The patient person says, well, it's not the way I want it today, but I know that down the road, God's going to move on my behalf. And so I'm going to walk in that hope. And so this current trial is not going to take me down or take me out. That's the patient person. The patient person rejoices in trial. Remember when James said, count it all joy when you encounter many trials, knowing that the trying of your faith works what? There you go. It's right there. So That's patience, but long-suffering, on the other hand, is the opposite of anger, and it is used to describe God in the Bible. Romans 2.4 says this about God, quote, or do you despise, writes Paul, the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, here's the dangerous thing about that. Some people go off in a sin. Uh, You know, Child of God church folks will uh, finally decide to step out of the protection of the Word and what they've always known was wrong, and they'll get out there, and they kind of test the waters of the world. And lo and behold, lightning doesn't strike, and the ground doesn't open up and swallow them. So they say, then it must be that this is okay with God. And not only that, but for a season... Things seem to go even better now that they've gone off into the world. So they go, whoa, look at that. All those things I believed all that time weren't true. No, 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 no. Here's what's going on. God is being good to you that you might repent. He's saying, I still love you. I'm tracking you and and I'm calling to you. and, And I'd rather bring you back through goodness than with a whip. And that's what Paul says right here. It's, it's the goodness of God is intended to lead you to repentance. So it's not okay to go do what you always thought was wrong if the wrong is clearly in the Word. It's God trying to get you back by being good to you. Now, and I believe personally that this has gone on with America for a very long time. And now the judgments are starting to fall. God was good for a very long time. When America was totally departing from God. God kept being good, but it didn't do any good. Now it's going to have to be some harsh judgments and I'm telling you, those are going to come. But where are we going to be? We're going to be in the hollow of His hand and hiding under the shadow of His wings. Amen? Now, it is by God's long-suffering that judgment is withheld from the human race. And here again, the human race will say, oh, well, look at this, we're doing all these things wrong, and there's no judgment. You're wrong. God is being good that you might turn. So God's long-suffering withholds judgment. If America or you and I got what we deserved, all that there would be all over the land of America is millions, three 350 million grease spots. That's it. But very importantly... God's long-suffering is not to be mistaken for weakness on God's part or indulgence or indifference. He's not indifferent and he's not weak. He's exceedingly mighty and his judgment has been withheld. Now, in fact, those who think to take advantage of God's long-suffering are only storing up what for themselves? I'm going to show you the scripture on this. If you take advantage of God's long suffering and continue in your sin and sort of spit in his face when he's been good to you and and convicted you and try to draw you back, then the Bible says you're only storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Look what Paul says in Romans 2, 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for who? Yourself. Wrath in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So when a nation like America or any other nation departs from God, decide to go their own way and kick God out, take Him out of the public square, take Him out of of the classroom, take the nativity scenes out of the public square, just remove mention of God in any sporting events or any public events at all, and really try to shut Him out, all that that nation is doing is storing up wrath For the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Because it says, Every nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. That's what it says. Jesus manifested, talking about long-suffering now, this first fruit that we're looking at tonight. Jesus manifested long-suffering on an incredible scale. Matter of fact, every one of these fruits that we're going to look at tonight, Jesus is the perfect model. He was long-suffering with his disciples, was he not? When asked to pray with him in Gethsemane, what did they do In, in the darkest hour of his life? They all fell asleep. He heard snoring in the distance. And his main men, Peter, James, and John, they were all sawing Z's while he was sweating blood. They didn't have a clue what was going on. And Jesus finally finished with his prayer, "'Not my will, but yours be done, Lord.'" And he walked past them, saw them sleeping, and he left them to their sleep. And he said, here's the deal. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is oh so weak. How many of you know that's true? Your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Now he was long suffering with the unbelief of his own generation. Look what he said about his own generation. Oh, faithless and perverse generation." He said to the critical crowd at the Mount of Transfiguration, How long shall I be with you? And yet he was long-suffering. Jesus was long-suffering. He was long-suffering with the Samaritans who refused to let him pass through their village. You remember that story? He wanted to pass through their village. They wouldn't let him. And here comes his main men, James and John. And what did they say? Lord, can we call fire from heaven down on them and turn them into grease spots? That's why I say it's a good thing we don't have the power of God. There'd be nobody in the churches left. There wouldn't be much left. Can you imagine if you had the power to call fire down on somebody and then just walk away whistling? There'd be no marriages. There'd be no children. But now, Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, no, that wouldn't be a good move. He said, guys, check your spirit. And what did they not have? Long suffering. You don't know what spirit you're of. You're not long suffering. You you need to be like me. Because I'm not going to do that to them. They'll answer for it someday. And amazingly, Jesus was long suffering with Judas. How many of you would have been? Would you have been long-suffering with Judas? If you could have turned Judas into a grease spot, would you have? If he came up and kissed you as a betrayal, the Judas kiss? No, no, no. We'd have said, burn! (laughs) But now, over and over, over and over and over again, he let that tragic man know that he knew the full extent of his betrayal, even at the Lord's Supper, He said, go and do what you must do. Do it quickly. I know what you're about to do. I know who you are. And I know you've been stealing money out of the money bag. I know you've been crooked. And I know that even though you've been with me, you haven't been of me. But go ahead. Go on and do it. It's all in God's hands. And he was still willing to forgive him had he turned in repentance. I believe Judas could have turned, but he didn't. Hung himself and went to hell. Jesus was long-suffering with Simon Peter and eager to forgive his denial. After his resurrection, Jesus went out of his way to find Peter and restore him. Long-suffering. Long-suffering with people. Long-suffering with your spouse. Long-suffering with your children. Long-suffering with church folk. Long-suffering with the people that were long-suffering. You're not easily angered. You're not short-tempered. But you're, you ever seen those mother dogs that have had a bunch of pups? And those puppies are crawling all over them, biting their ears, never letting them go to sleep. Always, always harassing them. And have you ever seen that mother dog just sits there and just takes it? Never gets angry, never barks, never snaps, just takes it? You need to be long-suffering in rush hour traffic. Long-suffering when things don't go your way. Long-suffering when people... Listen, fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering, which is to not be short-tempered. Long-tempered. Now, the same long-suffering model in the life of Jesus is to be part of our character as well. When you abide in Him and He abides in you, this is one of the fruits that ought to be growing. This one right here. We're to be long-suffering in the face of provocation an insult. One day Peter asked Jesus, "How often should I forgive my brother who sins against me?" And he thought he was being spiritual when he said this. Seven times? He thought he was really going out there to say, "Can I if I forgive him seven times, is that enough, Lord?" And you know what Jesus said? "No, no, no. Not seven, but 7 times 70, 490 times in one day." I have never had to forgive somebody 490 times in one day. But if I had to for some reason, I should. Long-suffering. This level of long-suffering is not possible to the flesh. Hence, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit grown in the soil of a born-again soul. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you more long-suffering than you were, say, a year ago? You should be. Fruit. Everybody say fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. See, you don't judge somebody's spiritual maturity by how many gifts they have. You judge somebody's spiritual maturity by how much fruit is grown. Because gifts are sown. Fruit is grown. Now, the next evidential fruit is gentleness. It comes from a Greek word meaning kindness or goodness of heart. And it is goodness in action. It is goodness in action. Now, as with all the other fruits of the Spirit, Jesus modeled gentleness the best. I believe the kindest man who ever lived was Jesus Christ. Really do. Peter summarized the life of Jesus by saying, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what did he do? He went about everywhere doing what? Good. He only did good. He never did bad. He only did good, and he healed everybody who was oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, he's our model, and to be a Christian means to be a little Christ. So here's the deal. As the fruit of the Spirit grows, we ought to be going out more and more and more and doing good to others, being good, having the fruit of goodness manifested, not being ornery, not being mean, not being short-tempered, but good and doing good. Good is as good does. Think of his kindness as the disciples rebuke the mothers of Jerusalem for bringing their children to him, only to hear him say, allow the children to come to me. For of such is the kingdom of God. Goodness. Jesus was good. He was the goodest man to ever live. And I know that's bad English, but it's good theology. He's the goodest man to ever live. Nobody was as good as Jesus, ever. Think of his kindness as he touched the wretched leper who no one else would get near. But Jesus went near him. You know those poor lepers? They had to have bells. And when they went into a social setting of any kind, even near a town or a city, they had to ring those bells and cry out, leper, 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 leper. Leper approaching. And everyone scattered. You talk about lonely You talk about ostracized, you talk about blue, you talk about down, nobody would get near them except other lepers. And yet Jesus walked right up to him and, and did the unthinkable, touched him. The goodness of Jesus. He was just good. And how kind he was to Peter. Here we are again, overwhelmed as he was with guilt and shame for denying the Lord. And what about that dying thief to his right hand side on the cross who just moments before cursed him as he hung on the cross? In fact, just try to imagine Jesus being unkind. Try to think of it. Can you imagine Jesus being unkind in any way, shape, or form? I can't. I can't think of it or imagine it. It can't be done. Because he was supremely, consummately, totally, thoroughly good. One of my favorite prophecies concerning Jesus was delivered by Isaiah the prophet. I love this verse. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says, talking of Jesus, he won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and the insignificant. King James says the bruised reed he will not snap and the smoking flax he will not quench. The bruised reed, you've seen these reeds sticking up out of ponds? All right, he's picturing one that is broken and about to go under, and he says, Jesus will not finish the job. He will be gentle with the bruised. And the smoking flax is a candle that it's almost burned out. You're almost burned out. You don't have much life left. You feel like you can't take another step. You're down to the last Ounce of strength, you're discouraged, you're blue, you're disillusioned, and yet it says, When Jesus encounters somebody that has only a little flicker of a flame that used to glow brightly, he will not blow it out, but he will stoke it in gentleness. I read that verse and I call it the prophecy of gentle Jesus, he's not mean. He's not dominating, he's not insistent, he's a gentleman, and he's gentle. This predicts that Jesus would be gentle with the brokenhearted, kind to the crushed spirit, compassionate toward the struggling soul. How many of you have ever been crushed and you were so thankful that Jesus was gentle? Let me see. Amen? Amen. Me Me too. Now, the next evidential fruit of the Spirit is goodness. It means, now listen carefully, that which is characteristically good in itself and beneficial in its effect on others. Now, it's used to describe the absolute goodness of God. Jesus said one time, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. What did Jesus call God? Good. It's the same word right there. Now, these last two fruits, I know what you're thinking. Well, they sound like they're the same. They really do. Gentleness and goodness, what's the difference? Well, they're in the same family of virtues. They are siblings. But between the two, gentleness and goodness, goodness is stronger stuff. Goodness is stronger. Doing what is good might sometimes call for a tougher stand than would gentleness. Now, let me give you, for instance, the Lord's goodness caused him to take off his gloves one day. He made a whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple. You remember that? That that wasn't gentle Jesus. Are y'all with me tonight? And and, And do you read where strong men saw him coming and they ran? You know what that tells me? My Jesus was a man. He was not a metrosexual. You couldn't, you didn't look at him and go, is it a boy or is it a girl? No, Jesus was a man's man. And when he was moving in goodness instead of gentleness, he could be a force to be dealt with. One man, my Jesus, walked into that temple where there was a bunch of men and he started swinging and they started running. Was that his gentleness? No, that was his goodness. He was hardly gentle at that time. His inherent goodness, here's what happened, his goodness could not stand by casually to watch the Pharisees defile God's temple. He was too good. How many of you ever looked at what's going on in our culture and then you just felt something rise up in you like a righteous anger? The perversion, all the things that we're being told that are right and we're wrong and and, and how everything is upside down now and what is good is bad and what used to be bad is now good and if we say anything else then we're bigots and we're this and we're that and and, and the way that the enemy just seems to be running over America have you ever just felt rise up in you sort of a righteous anger and, and you're, the goodness that God has put in you is offended come on everybody I hope that's true for every one of you in here Bible scholars tend to define the Lord's kindness as his gentler side and his goodness as the sterner side. To be both kind and good is the ideal. If you need gentleness, we can be gentle. I, as a child of God, can be gentle, very gentle. But if, 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 if you come at me with something like you must believe that a certain sin is right, You must agree with us. You must go along with it. Um, Or my God, my Christ, my Jesus is attacked and undermined and blasphemed. Then it hits up against the goodness in me. And I will come out sterner than gentler. And we ought to have both. We ought to have both. And depending on the circumstance is whichever is which one manifests. This combination causes a loving parent to say a firm no to a child and to back it up with discipline when necessary. I can tell you, folks, mark this down. Wicked, godless men hate a good man. Are you aware of that? Remember when Jesus said, If they hated me, they're going to hate you? If they rejected me, they're going to reject you? If they persecuted me, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to persecute you. Have you you ever felt what it's like to be hated only because you're a Christian? You know why that happens? Because you as a Christian convict the conscience of the godless. And people who have chosen to walk in the dark don't like people who have chosen to walk in the light. Because the light exposes the spiders and the spider webs hidden away in the corners of their soul. A good man is a formidable man, not a wimp. Jesus doesn't create wimps. Jesus was not wimpy. Do you know what? The Holy Spirit didn't come come upon us to make us nice. I've gotten where I almost hate Nice. Because Christians think, well, I, I'm called to be nice. So I'm nice. I don't want to offend anybody, step on anybody's toes, come on too strong. I just want to love everyone. Nice. I'm going to be nice. I want to be sickeningly, nauseatingly, revoltingly nice. You walk into a church, and what do you feel? A big anointing of nice. No. Can I tell you, Jesus was not nice. Well yes, he was, pastor. No. He was gentle. He was kind, but he could also be extremely forceful with truth. And black and white, and he did not compromise, and he did not mix truth with falsehood to get along with everybody so he can be nice. aren't we supposed to get along with everybody? No. Where do you get that? Where in the world do you get that? That we're supposed to get along with everybody. Let me tell you what Jesus said. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now you come to him, you'll get peace in your soul. But the gospel is a sword that divides believer from unbeliever, that, that divides light from dark and good from bad and right from wrong. And if you really walk with him, I guarantee you're going to be persecuted. And wicked men will hate you. Not because you're nice, but because you are inherently good. You have goodness in you, the goodness of the Holy Spirit, which is formidable. Didn't mean to go into all that. No, that's in my notes. That came straight out of my heart. Because I'm tired of, uh, I, I, you know... Every, have you ever noticed, every time Hollywood does a preacher, if he's not a killer or a serial rapist or a lunatic, he's nerdy and wimpy and sort of effeminate and nice and totally unimpressive and non-inspirational and non-charismatic and boring. Uh, I hate Hollywood's picture of preachers. Well, I could stay on that all night, but I'll be nice and move on. (laughs) Look what the Bible says. The wicked detest the upright. So don't be amazed if somebody hates your guts because you're a believer. It's come to that, folks. We're there in America now. I hope you know that if you really come out and live for Jesus in front of everyone, you're going to be persecuted and really and truly sometimes hated. What are you going to do with that? Pick up your marbles and go home? No. You're going to shine and say, you know, I'm so sorry you're offended by the Jesus in me. Really? But again, I'm really not. Sorry. Because I am going to tell you, when I came to him, he changed my life. I love you in the Lord. I do, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm not going to apologize for telling you the truth. The fruit of the Spirit produces both kindness and goodness in the character of the child of God. What a blessing to have these glorious attributes of the living God growing within our souls. Amen? Amen. Now, we've looked at the first three fruits of the Spirit, which are emotional. And then we looked at the second three, which are evidential. Now I want to come to the final three fruits of the Spirit, which are elemental. Now, the elemental fruits of the Spirit are the ultimate basics of the Christian life. They're the bare essentials of vital Christianity. The first of those fruits is faith. Without faith, you can't please God. And faith is the beginning of every walk with God and every encounter with God. Without faith, you will never have an encounter with God. So our whole Christian life, being born again, being saved, coming to Him, began with faith. Amen? Faith. Now, faith can be either the act or the attitude of believing trust. It can also be the quality of faithfulness, dependability, and loyalty. Now, catch that. The quality of being faithful and dependable and loyal. So, when we see faith in this list of nine fruits of the Spirit, it's not necessarily talking about faith that moves a mountain it's more than likely talking about being faithful, loyal, dependable, as God is. Because the other fruits are moral, just like that. So sometimes faith is simply the ordinary, everyday faith that we all exercise in a thousand different ways in daily, normal life. When you got into your car tonight to come to church, you turn that key in full faith, it would start. And when it doesn't start, sometimes your faith is offended right? You want to know, oh no, what is it? Is it the stupid battery? Is it the car maker? Did Chevy do this or the battery do this? Because your faith said it's going to start. Now you don't know how it works. If I told you go in and take that engine apart, and put it back together, you would say, I have no clue how to do that. I just know that I believe when I turn that key, it's going to happen. I operate in faith. When you walked into this church, you had faith there was going to be a chair for you. You had faith that I was going to be here. You had faith that you would hear something about Galatians. You didn't even think about it. You believed it was going to happen. We move in normal faith all the time. As the old saying goes, how does a cow eat green grass that, ter- that produces white milk and turns to yellow butter? I don't know. I just know I expect it to be there when I want butter on my toast. <laughs> faith. We have faith without even thinking about it, that the world's going to keep on spinning the way that it should, the way God made it, so that we don't all fly off into space lost in space. We operate in faith all the time. But here's the danger. The danger is that faith can be misplaced, and it's misplaced all the time. We might place our faith in a false God, or in a person, or a place, or a thing, and we look to that person or that place or that thing or that false doctrine to do something for us that only Christ can do. I mean, this is what the cults are all about. They want you to have misplaced faith. They want you to put the faith that you would usually turn towards God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and put it in something else to distract you, hopefully until you die lost. The object of our faith is everything. Misplaced faith can result in disaster, even in the loss of your soul. Jesus said, some people put faith in money and things and, and materialism, and he said, but, but guess what? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Because you can put your faith in money, but you can't take that with you. When you die, you go into eternity just like you came with nothing but your skin on you, and it's gone. You don't take any money, any riches, any necklaces, any cars, any golf clubs, anything. It all stays here. When faith is placed in the finished work of Christ, that is when faith becomes saving faith, securing faith, sanctifying faith. The minute I turn my faith to the right object and say, Jesus, forgive me, immediately I am saved. For if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be that very microsecond saved. So faith rightly placed becomes saving faith. And that's the only time that it does. In Galatians, Faith must probably be seen as the the quality of faithfulness and trustworthiness because the other fruits of the Spirit are all moral qualities. God is revealed in Scripture as being utterly trustworthy, absolutely dependable. God can never break His Word. Do you know that? God cannot break His Word. And once again, nobody was and is more trustworthy than Jesus Christ. When the disciples thought they were going to perish in the storm at sea, what did trustworthy Jesus, faithful Jesus do? Stood up and talked to the storm and stopped it and saved them. Why? Because he's trustworthy. See, some of you have needs tonight and the devil hits your mind and says, what are you going to do about that bill? What are you going to do about that kid that's gone nuts? What are you going to do about this or that in your life and tries to sow doubt? But you need to rise up and say, guess what? Living inside of me, is the trustworthy, loyal, faithful Jesus. And he cannot go back on his word. He can't do it. In another event, when they were straining it rowing, like the way you feel someday, straining it rowing against a wind that was blowing against them in the middle of the sea, did Jesus leave them? It says he saw them from the mountaintop. And what did he do? He said, I got to get to them because they're not getting anywhere. They're straining at rowing, but they're not getting anywhere. They're trying to get somewhere. They're trying to get where I told them to go, but they can't get there because they're going in their own strength. So he walked down and walked on the water to get to them. He walked on top of the very thing that was vexing them. And they said, "Ooh, it's a ghost. It is I. Be not afraid. And it says as soon as he got in the boat, it became a motorboat, and they were at the other side of the sea. Things change when Jesus gets in your boat. They really do. Things change when you're in a problem, say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but get in my boat. He appeared to them walking on the water because he is faithful. So do we become faithful as the fruit of the Spirit grows within. That's a fruit of the Spirit. As He is dependable, faithful, and loyal, Christians ought to be growing the same fruit. Dependable, faithful, loyal. You can depend on my word, I'm going to do it. Why? Because i got the fruit of the Spirit. I'm dependable, I'm faithful, and I'm loyal. I'm not a con, I'm not a cheat, I'm not a liar, I'm not a deceiver. I'm faithful, loyal, and dependable. Because I'm following one who is. And he's rubbing off on me. Now the next elemental fruit of the Spirit is meekness. Now I know what you think when I say meek. You say, "Well, Pastor Jeff is really meek. Some of you would think, really, he's weak? No. Meekness, you know what it means? Strength held back. I could, but I won't meekness is not weakness now here's another definition of meekness meekness is the attitude of heart that accepts the lord's dealings with us as good and perfect and acceptable the meek person does not resist god you know why it says moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth because he did not grumble against god like the israelites did see they were the antithesis of meek All they ever did was grumble, murmur, and complain. That's the opposite of meek. Meekness says, I trust you. I receive your dealings in my life, and I'm not going to resist you. The Lord Jesus described himself as meek. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am what? Meek and lowly in heart. He said, I'm meek. In his earthly life, Jesus possessed the power to create a galaxy. He said when they were arresting him, I could call on 12 legions of angels and they would come right now and whisk me out of here, but I will not do it. Why? Because I'm meek. Meekness means I'm going to do the will of God, not my own will, and I'm not going to resist him for it. He allowed himself to be abused by people he made. He allowed himself to be crucified by men so that he could submit to God's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, how did he end his prayer? Not my will, but thine be done. That's the statement of a meek person. As was Jesus, so shall we be, as the fruit of meekness is cultivated within the believer. Do you resist God? Do you get mad at God? Is there something God's trying to do in your life and you're kicking against him? Try putting on meekness. Because as we walk in the Spirit, we should be growing. The Holy Spirit should be producing this attitude, this fruit, where we say, not my will, but thine be done. And whatever your will is, Lord, I'm not going to grumble against it. As Jesus acquiesced to the will of God in all things, so will the child of God walking in meekness. Now, the final fruit of the Spirit in Paul's list is temperance. It comes from a Greek word meaning strength. It is sometimes translated self-control, but that's really not the best translation because even lost people can exercise self-control or discipline. Any athlete, I mean, we hear of these football players all the time on the football field who are very disciplined physically, but they cuss like sailors when you give them a microphone. They have no control over their own spirits, but they're disciplined partially. But as a fruit of the Spirit, actually, temperance means more than self control or discipline like an athlete might practice. It means self control in all things, particularly in the realm of your passions, your emotions, your what is taking place on the inside of you. Again, think of the self control exercised by Jesus, it's amazing. I mean, you got to think, folks, it was God standing there, allowing men to hit him, pluck his beard out, shove a crown of thorns on his head, and nail him to a tree. It was God. He could have said, You talk about being able to say, Burn, baby, burn. He could have said right then, and they would have all been gone. But no, no, the meekness of the Lord, it was God's will, and the temperance of the Lord, his ability to be totally in charge of his emotions. As he stood there in kangaroo court, being accused of things he did not do, his remarkable self-control at his trial, though he was utterly innocent, so much so that Herod marveled at his silence. He defended not himself. On the cross, consider the dignity with which he submitted to the soldiers who drove the nails through his hands and feet. Think about it. We don't read of any crying out. We don't read of any complaining. We don't read of any, God, how could you let this happen to me? None of that. He had temperance. He was in charge of his passions, in charge of his emotions. Not once did Jesus lose his sublime self-control. Even hanging on a cross of torture, he calmly and compassionately led a dying criminal next to him to eternal life. The last thing I'm going to be thinking about hanging on a cross is leading somebody to Jesus. But he did. Totally in charge. Folks, the good news is, this is a fruit of the Spirit. This is not something you've got to make happen inside of you. This is something God produces in you. The child of God can also display beautiful self-control as this ninth fruit of the Spirit grows within. What an incredible person it is indeed in whom the fruits of the Spirit have been developed like this. Here's what they're going to be like. Such a person is loving, full of joy, calm, and peaceful come what may. They are patiently submissive to God. They are gentle. They are good, completely dependable, strong, and in control of their passions. Sound like somebody you'd like to be around? Yes. Amen. Compare that to Paul's list in 2 Timothy 3 as he describes the character of end-time man. Totally opposite. Paul says, against such things there's no law. The law can never produce such fruit as this. Now, he's going to go on and tell us as we come towards the close how such fruit is cultivated. I don't know about you, but I read about this, and I want it. Do you want it? I said, do you want this fruit? Wouldn't life be easier with this fruit? Less stressful if you're not always flying off the handle, always emotional, always all stressed out, full of doubt. If the the fruit of the Spirit is going to get you off your blood pressure medicine. Now, look, he says, you want to know how to get this fruit? Verse 24 tells us those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, listen very carefully. We've been through Galatians. Now, we're, we're going to finish the, ne- the last chapter next week. What have we learned in this letter in these 13 weeks? What have we learned over and over again? That there is a battle between the flesh and the spirit between the old man and the new man that you can either walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh that the flesh is at war with God the enemy of God against God and there's no good thing in the flesh in the Adamic nature that we inherited from Adam so what have we learned in Galatians over and over again that God's only answer to the flesh is the cross you can't debate with it you can't make a truce with it You must crucify it. If you're going to bear fruit, this is what you've got to do. Man might kill himself. You can kill yourself, but guess what? You can't crucify yourself. When it comes to crucifixion, somebody else has got to get those nails and that hammer and do it for you. You might be able to kill yourself with a gun or poison or whatever. You cannot crucify yourself. What is the message of Galatians? God did it. For us, by identifying us with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, God has put us to death. I want you to say that with me. I'm dead, dead. or as East Texas, I'm dead. dead. I've got a friend, my producer. He makes two syllables out of everything with one. My name is JF, (laughs) and he would say, "I'm dead." But dead or dead, you're dead. You say, well, pastor, really? Come on now, really? Yes. The song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, yes, you were there. How were you there? He killed your flesh on that cross. He crucified your flesh on that cross. When When we baptize people, we say this, buried with him by baptism into his death and raised to walk in the newness of life. The picture is you left your old man in the water and you came up to walk in the newness of life because the old man is dead reckon yourselves indeed to be crucified with christ reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin so god put us to death and then he buried us and raised us up again in newness of life that's not pretty theology that's actually True. Having been crucified, we're to now walk in the Spirit. We're to now walk in the Spirit. He that is a child of God walks in the Spirit. Look at it says in verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, in other words, if the Spirit is, is inside of us, then let's walk in the Spirit. If He's living inside of us, then let's walk in the Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit, not in the power of the flesh that was crucified. How do we walk in the Spirit? Here it is, the same way Jesus did, by making ourselves always available to Him. As He made Himself available to the Father. We walk in the Spirit by living a yielded life. You know, my mind as a preacher, I search for words and I'm always, thinking, how can I say it best? We walk in the spirit by living a yielded life. I can't put it any other way, yielded. So that when the flesh says, do this, you say, no, I yield to the Lord right here. And I'm going to walk in the spirit because I don't have to any longer obey the promptings of my flesh because my flesh was crucified. Reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed, crucified with Christ. Let me ask you a question. Were you crucified with Christ? Yes. Is your old man dead? Yes. And you have a new man, eh? a new man, amen? Yes. Now living inside of you. So, and the Spirit of God is living inside of us to help us do that very thing. Now, look what Jesus said abide in me. It's not complicated. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear what? The nine fruits of the Spirit. You cannot bear the fruits of the Spirit unless you abide in the vine. People can be saved for 50 years and never get this. They remain carnal Christians their whole life. They never bear the fruits of the Spirit, because they don't see that it just it's a matter of me just hanging on to the vine. I mean, we all know you go out in your backyard and break a branch off of a tree, it'll look fine for a while. It'll look just like all the other branches. Leaves, bark, it'll be it'll be flexible, but let it sit there a couple of weeks. All the leaves die, it gets brittle, the bark falls off. Why? Because it's no longer abiding in the vine. We've got to abide every day. You get you every day you get up and you get with God, you get into that word, and you go into prayer, and you Set yourself in that vine daily. And then throughout the day, you simply obey the promptings of the spirit instead of the promptings of the flesh. And as you abide in the vine, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith, grow. You don't have to do anything. Just hang there. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are branches. Now read the next part with me, would you? Good and loud. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. The nine fruits. For without me you can do nothing, as it relates to bearing fruit. That's what he means. You can change a tire, but you can't bear fruit apart from him. As crucified people who walk in the Spirit, he closes out the chapter. Let's stand together and we're going to read this. As crucified people who are to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, abiding in the vine daily, what are we to do? Let's read it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. None of those things ought to be going on if you're abiding in the vine and walking in the Spirit. Now next time we're going to talk about restoring one another instead of beating one another to a pulp, And can we just thank the Lord right now for this incredible fruit of the Spirit? Lord, we just thank you right now for the, this beautiful picture of the nine fruits, like a beautiful fruit tree with nine different fruits, characteristics that are of God that Jesus Christ perfectly modeled, Lord, we ask you to help us to daily, not to not play church and only get with you on a Sunday or whatever, but to daily abide in that vine. Get up and pray. Read that Bible. Soak in the word. Yield our lives to you that day. And walk out the door a crucified man a crucified woman yielded to the spirit of God that lives inside of us that next year Lord at this very same time we can look back and say wow did I grow this year I'm more at peace I have more love I'm more patient I am indeed more long-suffering I'm not as easily angry I'm yielded to God and I don't complain. And I have seen that I'm in greater control of my passions as I yield to the Holy Spirit. And I receive that, Lord. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Let's sing how great is our God.